Coming up next on the Cultural Connections Podcast, searching for truth and getting the answers. We'll be joined by Matthew Carroll, professor of journalism at Northeastern University and a former member of the Boston Globe Spotlight team. This episode is being recorded live on Tuesday, October 26th, 2021. This is the Cultural Connections Podcast. And good afternoon, everybody. My name is Brian Ives, and I am the producer and the host of the Cultural Connections podcast. We are coming on here today for the Cultural Connections podcast. And before I go further, I want to remind and introduce our guest and our topic today. I want to remind all of our viewers that we are recording this episode live on Tuesday, October 26, 2021. This episode should be live streamed on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. So therefore, if you have a question you'd like answered during the broadcast today, during our live feed, please feel free to comment on the platform you're watching from. Uh, but being aware that I can only monitor one feed at a time. So for the beginning, assuming we are live on Facebook, last time we had trouble with that, uh, we'll be live on Facebook. for the We'll be watching Facebook for the first 10 to 15 minutes, then Twitter, and ending with YouTube. Um, for today's podcast, we have a very interesting episode today, and we're going to be talking about seeking the truth and getting the answers and diving a little bit more into exactly what that means. And we're joined by someone who I think knows the, could know the answer, will help with finding out what those answers mean. And that is Matthew Carroll. Matthew is a journalism professor at Northeastern University, but more notably is known as a member of the Boston Globe Spotlight team which many of you may remember back in, 2000, in 2002, roughly about he, uh, the story that broke about the Catholic Church and the uh, child, sex abuse scandal, child sex abuse scandal that had been going on. He was part of that team that helped uncover this massive story that, as we all, as, as we also know, was turned into a major motion film called Spotlight that was, came out in 2015 and won the best picture. Thank you so much, Matt, for joining me today. How are you? Good, thank you. So without further ado, I always start off with each of these episodes um, with our guests telling our viewers a little bit about their background. Can you tell us a little bit about your background before we go any further? Yeah, so for the last five years, I have been a professor of the practice at Northeastern, working with both graduate and undergraduate students in the journalism department. Before that, I was at the MIT Media Lab for two or three years working on a a uh, new initiative called the Future of News Initiative. And before that, I was at the Boston Globe for 26 years, working as a reporter, mostly working, or probably for more than the, for two thirds of my career, basically doing data. I was sort of the data reporter for the, for the Boston Globe, one of them. And before that, I worked for a bunch of smaller papers. Oh, that's, that's great. What a great uh, background. So uh, for the majority of this podcast today, we're going to be obviously talking about your work with the Boston Globe, but I, I'd like to, uh, we're also going to hone in on journalism at, as well, but can let's first of all talk about the work of the Spotlight team, and there may be some viewers out there that don't know, can you tell us for the, our viewers that don't know what Spotlight is and what the Spotlight team is at the Globe, can you tell us a little bit more about what the Spotlight team is? Sure. It's the Spotlight team is the Boston Globe's investigative team. It was founded back in the 1970s, and it has been running continuously since then. I believe it's the longest continuous investigative team in the country. It goes under one name anyways. 
And um, when I was on it, they had four members. It, the, the number of members fluctuates some, somewhat. The, the Globe actually has invested a lot of people in it now. I, I know it's more, it's more than six, I believe. And uh, because they realize that people are really interested in investigative journalism, and that's what they're doing. They're putting a lot of money into it. They're doing a great job, the current team. Wow, that's, that's fantastic. Um, my next question then to you is then specifically with the Spotlight team, it's about your work that was specifically on that Spotlight team. What we alluded to at the beginning was about the amazing story that you, um, your team uncovered back in the early 2000s with the Catholic Church. Can you tell us a little bit more for our viewers that may not know about this story, uh, how this story came to be um, and the attention that this story quickly gathered once it became a published story? Sure. So the, the, the Spotlight team works on on a story from anywhere from a month to a year and then publishes. And after you publish, you're looking around for another story. Well, it so happened that Marty Barron had just started as the new editor of the Boston Globe back in 2001. And on his first day in the job, he basically said, I see these stories in the paper about this priest who was bounced from parish to parish and abusing kids, but, and all the records are sealed. I don't understand why all the records are sealed. Marty had come from Florida, where it's a pretty much a wide open state as far as sealing records, it's very, very difficult. So he basically said, let's put spotlight on this and see if they can uncover what's really going on. And that's how it started. That was our new story. And um, it went on from there. As everyone knows, it just exploded after that once the first story came out on January 6, 2002. Really is incredible. Um, to, to really looking at at this it's a historic story that really had such an impact. Obviously, as you said, it exploded uh, from there. Can you uh, tell us uh, then a little bit more uh, about this particular story for our viewers that don't know and um, really onto the fact um, and what why this story obviously what what made this story have such an impact to especially well, I guess, I mean, the, the background the background's kind of interesting because basically all the members in the team were catholic marty was jewish and he's coming from a state that doesn't have a huge catholic population unlike um uh massachusetts or boston specifically which is basically the biggest catholic city in the country and, um, you know, growing up Catholic, I was always aware of, you know, rumors about so-and-so who's a priest, stay away from, he's a little weird. Um, but that kind of stuff after a while just sort of fades into the background and you don't think about it. So Marty comes in and he has a newcomer's eye and he's sort of saying, what, this is kind of strange. All these priests are abusing kids. How many are there? Let's, let's look at this thing. You know, what is going on here? And we, we started diving into it. And we realized very, very quickly that it was hard to get information. There had been a previous case, actually, 10 years earlier in Fall River, which is just south of Boston, involving a priest named Father Porter. And um, what had happened was it basically very quickly became a he said, she said, where 100 kids, now adults, basically said, Father Porter abused us. Father Porter saying, no, I didn't. And the story kind of gets stuck there. And the Globe wrote a lot of stories about it, and people started saying, this is Catholic bashing, and they picked it outside the Globe, and the Globe lost advertisers and, and paying customers. So um, we wanted to go beyond that. So it was clear, I mean, other people had done the same kinds of stories that, the he said, she said. What we were trying to do was figure out what is really going on here. 
And Robbie, very Walter Robinson, who was the, the leader of the team, very quickly said, this is a cover-up story. We're working on a cover-up. We're trying to figure out what is going on here. And so we needed documents. And the way to get those documents was through the courts. And after um, some intense legal battles, we did get the documents or began to get the documents, which showed that, yes, the church was covering stuff up. And we began to run those documents in the paper. This was early days of the internet. We're also putting PDFs online. But the documents were very, very easy to understand. They would be a, a memo signed by uh, Cardinal Law or one of his deputies, and it would say something like, Father Smith has abused another boy at St. Mary's, send them off to another church, don't tell them on senior there what he's done. And so um, people read that and they were just outraged that the church was taking people who were abusing kids and putting them in the, in the harm of, uh, taking their kids and putting them in the harm of, of dangerous priests. And um, from the first day that story ran, it just took off. I mean, it was like riding a trying to ride the back of a tiger or something. It was just incredible. And the last scene in the movie shows all the phones in the office just ringing off the hook. And we had to bring all these interns down. And that was totally true. We had to bring in a ton of interns just to answer the phones. So it would never be able to do any work. Wow. No, that's incredible. And that literally what I was just going to get into next is about the film. As many of our viewers know that this the work of this story was produced into a well not only was it produced into a film but your work also won you one of journalism's most coveted awards a pulitzer prize which is incredible but uh before on the end what i was about to get into is about the fact that this was created into a major motion film which really I mean, you, you don't see in data out there today especially in, in this modern days of journalism movies that show the inner workings of how how journalists work and this film really exemplified the work that you guys did now would would let's talk about the i mean the way this story would you say if you were to i want to i'm interested to ask you with this as a question would you believe it do you believe if you were to start this story what would you do differently if you were to restart this whole investigation today what would have been done would you have done anything differently that you've done that you didn't do at the time when you started this investigation well, i think we'd start with more bodies to do the reporting because we had no idea it was going to be again like it was just going to blow up so fast so we would have we would have added more people much faster but there were some sort of technical stuff we would have done as well um, there was just huge interest in what we were writing about and what the documents we were posting online. But basically, we were cherry picking the documents. So we'd get these big, you know, court boxes, which are you know three or four feet long, three feet long or whatever they are, just packed. And sometimes two or three of those a day, and we'd just pull out ten or fifteen of the best documents and put them online. If we were doing it again, I think one thing we'd do is invest in a high-speed scanner, and you know, so we could put up a thousand pages a day, so people could search them. That'd be definitely one thing we would do, um, but we just didn't really have the technical capabilities at that point. Um, so, you know, scanning was laborious to put it mildly. And so we just really couldn't do what we're the, we, we just, frankly, we didn't even really think of it at the time that it was gonna be, the story was gonna have such long legs. I mean, here we are talking about it 19 years later. And that to me is just incredible because most stories that I wrote about were kind of forgotten within a few weeks or a few months, definitely. So this story just has incredible right. legs. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And before we go further, I just want to quickly remind our viewers that we are recording this episode live. This is the Cultural Connections podcast. And we're live here on Tuesday, October 26, 2021. 
We're talking about journalism at its finest with seeking the truth and getting answers with a journalist himself, Matthew Carroll, who is a former member of the Boston Globe Spotlight team and now professor of journalism at, at uh, Northeastern University. Um, let's talk more, a little bit more about this story um, with the fact that it won, I, I mentioned it a few minutes ago that you also won a Pulitzer Prize for this, for your team's work in this story. What, what, what does that mean to you and your team to know that, that your work won a Pulitzer Prize and, and what was the, the, the uh, gratitude, I guess, over winning an award like this for your hard work? It was, I mean, it was really gratifying. I mean, you know, it's, it's an award that shows that, that other people in our community in the journalism world really appreciated the work we had done. And it was just such a wonderful moment to, to, to win that award. Um, uh, my wife often says that, that winning that award was, um, was big news for a weekend, but the movie has just taken everything to a totally different level. Uh, because that was that's popular, right? I mean, the, the movie's been seen by, I don't know, millions of people. People, I don't know how many people read the story about us winning the Pulitzer, but it was not millions of people. So right. um, it was sort of, that's sort of an inside baseball sort of thing, right? I mean, people people in journalism care who wins, but for the average person, it's not that big a deal. Movies are a big deal. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about the movie for a second. The movie, you, the movie probably became more successful than you would have even imagined too. I mean, who would, this movie which if you haven't seen the movie yet and you're watching this right now i highly recommend you see the movie spotlight just to really if you want to see a movie that has shows the inner working of journalism this is your movie um but uh, the movie spotlight won that in 2015 for the year for the best picture in the academy awards which again just goes to show you the i mean i think it goes to show your team that how hard you guys worked at making this happen. I mean, and and to see this story, uh, when you first heard that there was a film coming out about your work, what did you think when they were going to be? Honestly, we were um, we were kind of skeptical. We had been approached by a couple of producers. They said we want to make a movie out of this, and we were like, okay. Uh, what not many people know is there actually had another movie had already been made, not based on us, but based on a book about the whole crisis in which the Boston Globe played a part. It was done by Showtime um, in a year, the year or two right after the crisis had broken. And frankly, it was horrible. It was just a really, really bad movie. I can't even remember the name of it, uh, but it was bad. And so we were like, oh man, we don't want someone to make a bad movie. But the guy who was making this movie was Tom McCarthy, who is a, just a tremendous director. He, he did uh, Win Win and The Station Agent and just these sort of really nice movies with no sex, no violence, no car chases, and they're just really, really good. Um, and he was teamed up with a, with a writer named Josh Singer who had written for the West Wing. Again, just a really top-notch talent, not known for doing car chases, all that kind of junk. And um, they did a great job. And by the way, Tom actually is an actor and he got interested in journalism because he was on The Wire. Uh, people may remember that uh, show, which was a tremendous, tremendous show. And in that he played a corrupt uh, reporter a newspaper so that's how we got interested in it oh very interesting i didn't even know that um well let, let's talk more a little bit more about the movie for another few minutes here and i i, I know that well with every movie there becomes a little bit that there were parts uh, to my understanding of the film 
that were, so I understand, a little bit more exaggerated than the actual how the actual how the chain of events actually went. Can you give us like a brief understanding of what actually was a little bit more exaggerated in the film versus what actually really happens? Yeah, I mean, when when Josh and Tom talked to us, they said, "Look, we are making a movie. It's not going to be a documentary. We're going to change things to work." fit the plot, but we're going to try to be as realistic as possible and be sensitive to what actually happened. And they were amazingly sensitive, but you know, they did take three characters and turn them into one character, for instance, just for the sake of ease of storytelling. And some of the chronology was a, was a little messed up. Um, but all in all, I mean, journalists love this movie because in fact, it feels so realistic. And I mean, you sort of feel like you can sort of feel the grind of just slowly slogging through a lot of stuff before you come up with that story and journalists appreciate it. It's no sort of like, there's no burst of lightning where everything gets done. You just work for months on something and then you slowly get it out. Um, one thing that was unusual was I had told, I had told Josh that when we were doing our first story, we were looking at a priest named Father Gagan who would have used a lot of kids and we we're doing what we call a deep dive on him. and. In the course of that, I realized he lived on in West Roxbury, and I live in West Roxbury, and I have four young kids, so I was like, well, where does he live? So I was, pulled out a paper map in those days, and I'm looking at it, and I realized he lived right around the corner from my house, so I walked to his house, which took like two minutes, and I was just shocked, so I took a, um, took a picture of Gag and put it on my refrigerator and told my kids, you see this guy, you run the other direction, which frankly did nothing but terrorize him. They had no idea what I was talking about, but in the movie... Um, they said, you know what? No one's going to believe that Gagan actually lived around the corner from you. We're going to turn it that into a house for bad priests, essentially, and that's what they did. So that, that was a, an example of something they desensationalized. Right. Oh well, very, very interesting. Very, very interesting. Um, we could go on for hours on the film, but I'm not going to, and, and about this whole story in general. But I, I, I also want to take a time to talk about journalism just in general, because in especially in recent years, we have seen the state of journalism change, the way stories are reported, and, and especially in a time where getting information and getting the truth to the people is so important. What are your thoughts on the way we have seen journalism change in these, especially within these past few years in making sure that we get the truth out to the people. I mean, there's a couple things going on. First of all, from the point of view of reporters, their job's gotten harder because, you know, back in the day when I first started at the Globe or earlier newspapers, I would go out, I'd cover an event, say, early in the afternoon, I'd take my time, write it up, be done at six or seven o'clock, then go home. Now, if you're covering an event, say, going to a, a you know, a trial or something, they want you to send up some tweets, maybe a couple Instagrams. Um, then write something really, really fast for the web, then come back to the office or go to a coffee shop, whatever, and then write a story for tomorrow's papers. So there's so much more work involved and everything is so much more pressurized. So it's a, it's tougher for reporters. The other part is, um, you know, what's, what's happened is there's way more noise than there used to be. And by noise, I mean, other people putting stuff out there. And so, uh, you know, back in the 1970s, say, um, which is before I started my career. But back in the 1970s, there was basically a couple newspapers in Boston. And in order to start a newspaper, you needed a lot of money because you needed to buy printing presses and all that kind of stuff. Now, it takes you 10 minutes to buy a website, to set it up and make it look 
pretty good. You know, kind of like the Boston Globe website, if you want. Um, right. Now, what you don't have is the Boston Globe's ethics, code of ethics and experience reporters and everything else. But people might look at that website and think, oh, this is authentic not realizing that someone has put up a bunch of crap stories, made up stories, fake stories, whatever. So it, it tends to confuse the issue between what is legitimate news, where people have real standards versus what's something with very, very low standards. Uh, so there's just a lot more noise out there and it's a lot more difficult for people to figure out what's going on. And as we've seen over the last few days, uh, well, actually a few weeks, I guess, on Facebook, um, a lot of that bad news gets amplified more than the real news. Absolutely. And I was just actually going to get into that that next with social media. But before I quickly do that, I want to remind our viewers that we're recording this episode live. This is the Cultural Connections podcast recorded live on Tuesday, October 26, 2021. We're talking about journalism at its finest, seeking the truth and getting answers with journalist Matthew Carroll, formerly of the Boston Globe Spotlight team, currently a professor of journalism at Northeastern University. Uh, Let's talk about social media and the way social media has really, especially recently, as we as you just alluded to, has had such an, an impact in the way news is covered, that anyone can post something to social media and say that they're a journalist, pretend to be a journalist, pretend to do this. How, how has social media impacted the role of journalism? And what, what, what do you think we can, the future looks like for journalism with social media being part well, of it? Well, I think it's gonna be interesting. I think one of the issues it seems to me with organizations like Facebook is they, I mean, Zuckerberg continuously says, we're not a media company, we are a technology company. And I think what happens with, when you think like that is that content then really has no value. Content is just a thing. It's like you're making widgets and you know, news is not like that and opinions are not like that. So um, you can put out some really damaging, harmful information. And if people aren't paying attention to it, really paying attention to it and saying, we need to take down, we need to keep track of what the bad stuff and get it out of our system, then you end up with huge problems. And that's an issue that Facebook is facing because they've just been interested in getting those widgets out there, putting up content. They didn't really care that much about what it said or what its effect was. And now they're starting to reap all that. And, um, you know, it's bad. I, they, they're so far behind the curve now, it's gonna take a long, long time for them to catch up if they even want to catch up. And frankly, I have my doubts that they even really wanna clean up, clear up this system. I think they're, they're right. concentrating on making money. They don't really care that much about right. what, is, what is being put up there, whether it's true or not. Uh, absolutely, I agree with you on that. Uh, then al along those lines is in terms of as well with journalism, and that is the matter of trust, because we have seen, especially in recent years, where uh, we have, especially when it comes down to a political level, where we have leaders, uh, our, we have leaders of, from our political leaders to all sorts of things who are trying to dispel this new words that these new things called fake news that we, I mean, how much of a concern is this for journalists in the years to come that that they that they have to try to also they battle against leaders in in providing truth but they're but the audience at the same time thinks that they may not be how do you get the make sure that the the the, the truth is out there and getting the audience your view the viewer the the reader or the viewer to believe that truth uh, yeah honestly that's a great question and it's a really tough issue, Brian. I mean, you have 
because there's so much obviously fake news out there and people see that in their Facebook stream or in Twitter or wherever, then that sort of poisons the well for the other legitimate sources of information that are on Facebook too. And one of the issues is how many places you can get information from. I mentioned earlier that, you know, when I was growing up, there were two papers in Boston and three TV stations or whatever, and, you know, so a couple of radio stations. But now in the course of my breakfast, I may hit 10 different websites, you know, and a lot of them, are, you know, basically legitimate type websites. But if I go on Facebook and I'll be talking to someone, I saw, and I'll say, I saw this great story today. And they'll say, well, where did you see it? And I'm like, well, I saw it on Facebook because I can't remember what the heck who actually published it, everything right. starts to blur. And uh, unfortunately, that blurring means that a lot of people confuse good sites with bad sites and everything kind of gets end up in one big muddle. You know, it, it's, it's truly is incredible. Uh, with that said, I, I can't believe I have to say this, but it's amazing how fast a half hour time slot go, uh, flies by with this. I mean, it, this discussion could go on for hours with journalism. There's so much to it. There's so much going on in today's society. The best I can say is in, in the end here is to those watching, make sure you're there. I always say from my own standpoint here, when you're looking at something online on social media, verify it first to make sure you're reading accuracy. But with all of that said, I want to thank uh, Matthew Carroll for joining me again today here on the podcast. If you have future questions, if you have questions or comments or suggestions for future episodes of the podcast, feel free to reach out to me by email at brianives at gmail.com. That's B-R-I-A-N-I-V-E-S at gmail.com. And I also invite you to send suggestions for future episodes. And if you had a question for today, but you thought about it right now at the end, still feel free to get in touch with me and I will get your, I'll get your questions over to Matt and we'll do our best to get them answered for you. Again, I want to thank Matt for joining me. This has been an incredible episode. And as a future journalist in the works, it is incredible to see the work that you're, I can't emphasize it enough. I'm sure others feel the same way about the work that the Spotlight team did in uncovering that story back in 2002. And again, if you haven't seen the movie Spotlight, you need to go see it now. It is truly an incredible movie. I highly, highly recommend that. So again, thank you to Matt for joining me today. And we will see you next time on the Cultural Connections podcast. Thank you again for watching this episode of the Cultural Connections podcast. For more information on today's episode, be sure to check out our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also watch this episode again in its entirety on our YouTube channel. This podcast is also available on listening platforms Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Breaker, Radio Public, and New TV. Thanks again for watching this episode of the Cultural Connections Podcast.